Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Jean about her poem, California, which appeared in a special feature of Lusa American Poets on The Common Online. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Jennifer Jean's poetry collections include The Fool, an Object Lesson, out this year from Lily Books. Her teaching resource, Object Lesson, a guide to writing poetry, is also out this year. Jennifer's awards include a Kenyan Review Writers' Workshop Fellowship, a Disquiet Fellowship to Write and Study Poetry in Portugal, a Her Story Is residency where she worked with Iraqi women artists in Dubai, and an Ambassador for Peace Award for her activism in the arts. She's the translations editor for Talking Writing Magazine and the program manager of 24 Pearl Street, the Fine Arts Works Center's online writing program. She lives in Massachusetts with her husband and children. Jennifer Jean, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm very happy to be here. We always like to start off by sort of setting the scene. You know, our theme is sense of place. So so would you tell us what's the sense of place for where you're calling from today? Well, the literal space, the immediate space is my bedroom. (laughs) I have a very um, comfortable armchair here that I longed for uh, for years and then finally let myself uh, purchase. (laughs) And I have a wonderful reading lamp and a kitty. It's very writerly here. And uh, this room is located in Peabody, Massachusetts, where I live. Okay. Um, That's such a nice area. A great museum, right? In Peabody? Uh, it's in the next town over, but it oh. bears the name Peabody. The Peabody Essex Museum it is great. I love going there. Yes, legendary. Uh, would you start off by reading your most recent poem in the common called California? Sure. California, after Joni Mitchell, climbing a stone flight in downtown Lisboa, I dodged the disquiet family begging on Rua Garrett with their rehearsed moans, with their smiling smoke breaks in the alley, by the Paroquia dos Martires. I had seen them, and they'd seen me too, posing the week before in a chair at the Café Abrazelera with the bronze of Pessoa. They nodded, shuffled past. Then my alma immortal sat so straight, I knew my chair held the body that housed my home. I felt like a queen, crab, like California, home. Like there are no strangers in this world. Like meeting Miriam Mosin, at the International in Dubai, linking arms on a water taxi. We own no gripes, no grips or rails or walls between us and the Arabian Sea. She was gorgeous in a magenta turban and jeweled collar pendant. She explained the pelvic benefits of a squat latrine as our skiff surfed along the sook. As I held myself up with my core, I nestled into that night like a foundation stone, like buying my ticket to Seoul, catching a train to Chunshim Lake going to a party up a red dirt road on Sunun Hill above a cold autumn fog. There were lots of seeking people there, reading Shadows on the Cumulus, reading Sunset Rays over the temples below. I faced east, found I ached like home, and I became the state of California, like a planked pier leaning over the Pacific, or a twilit Ferris wheel there, elevating friends in a gently vertical turn. Like me, they hovered a little above the land, and a breeze made all our eyes water. Thank you so much for reading that. 
I am not crass enough to ask a poet what her poem is about, quote unquote, but I wonder <laughs> if you might tell us what you hope readers or listeners take from the poem, like like if there's a heart of the poem. Um, I think it's fine to ask what a poem's about. Um, <laughs> and it, I do, I do, because I think that there are several layers uh, to most poems, mm-hmm. um, especially the best ones. And I'm hope I'm, I hope that I'm a person, <laughs> a poet writing some best poems. Um, So the surface level aboutness for this poem would be that, um, you know, the the speaker is longing for for home um, and feels at home, you know, longs for home and then realizes that she feels at home no matter where she is. You know, sort of that old adage, home is where the heart is or wherever you go, there you are, which sometimes has negative connotations to it. Mm -hmm. But um, in this one, I'm hoping that it's a positive connotation. (laughs) And then that would be the surface layer aboutness. And then the, I guess, the secondary, secondary layer, deeper layer would be this uh, attribution that I, um, I uh, or reference that I gave in the beginning, that this poem is after Joni Mitchell's song, California. And in that song, Joni, I'm calling her Joni like I know her. But anyways, <laughs> jo- but Joni, she, she's presenting an argument, actually, her, you know, in a way, through her song. Um, I taught um, composition from so for 18 years. <laughs> so I, I think of things in arguments many times. And she has an argument in her song, which is that she's traveling and she's longing for home and home is elsewhere and she can't wait to get back to it. And her home is California. Um, and so in my poem, it's I'm longing for home. And then I realize I am at home wherever I am. You know, so I'm sort of having a counter argument <laughs> with with Joni Mitchell and I know that many people might not even get to that to that layer of meaning, um, that there's a counter argument going on. They might ignore the after Joni Mitchell portion mm-hmm. um, or that I'm even yeah, doing an argument at all, whether it's against someone else's argument or, you know, anything like that. So that's that's something I mean, I'm curious what what readers think of the poem, because very often I give these explanations and then people say, oh, I thought it was about this other thing. <laughs> That's usually more beautiful and simple, you know. Yeah. I mean, I definitely did. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I like that you can, the poem can be experienced by someone who is familiar with the Joni Mitchell song and and understood in one way and, and still experienced and enjoyed by someone who's, you know, not familiar with, with the song or, or the argument that's happening in it. Yeah. Um, I, I am such a huge fan of Joni Mitchell. I'll call her Joni oh. like I know her. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I, I have to say, when they gave Bob Dylan the Nobel Prize for Literature, my first thought was that they'd have to give it to Joni too. Now, <laughs> like it was just you the next so, step. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so right. I, I, she's she's an amazing songwriter. Um, yeah, I'm I'm in love with her work. Uh, yeah, a true a true poet. <laughs> yes, um, so, yes. So I I know that you've collaborated with musicians on on past projects as well. D- does music factor naturally into your writing process? Is that does that happen often? It does happen often, not all the time. Um, this poem is from a series of eco poems that are, or I call them eco-ish poems because they're not so straightforward eco poems um, that are centered around uh, the place where I grew up in California, uh, the Los Angeles beachside area. Actually, I didn't grow up in the beachside, but I went to the beach often. So it's a sort of Southern California locale Um and in that, when I was growing up, there was a, you know, a sort of a, a kind of music called the California sound, actually. 
Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. was part of that. She lived in Laurel Canyon. I think she Oh uh, yes, Laurel know. Canyon. <laughs> yes, the Lady of the Canyon. So she had, you know, she has songs about that. And um yeah, so this is so when I'm writing this series or when I've been writing this series, the music factored in. I have like I have a poem uh, called Against the Wind <laughs> also, which is a Bob Seger song. And I'm not a heavily, you know, a mm-hmm. big fan of his as I am of um, Joni Mitchell or of some of the other songs that have come into the series, this California sound. However, I just, uh, it was part of my growing up. It's sort of in my DNA. Um, and one, one other song or uh, group would be The Doors. So I can't tell even now if I actually like The Doors. It just was part of my upbringing. My parents were obsessed with them. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And there's even this family legend that my dad, that was debunked like two years ago, uh, finally, because I found out through family friends that he, I thought for my whole life that he had almost been the drummer for The Doors. Like he had auditioned and he was almost <laughs> going to happen. It it wasn't real. It was not a real story. He was just obsessed with them. He was like a weird groupie <laughs> um, living in the same in the same town in Venice where they lived um, mm-hmm. back in the seventies. So yeah, so Joni is, is big. Um, but yeah, uh, many of these artists that are, are uh, as I said, not so big for me um, or are just factor in depending on the project. Um, but I have, I have uh, worked in some other favorites of mine. I don't know if you've ever heard of the jazz musician, um, songwriter, Madeline Peru. I haven't no. I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong. I should know better. It's probably Perot, Madeline Perot. In any case, she's a, an American uh, jazz artist who sings. She's been likened to Billie Holiday, a sort of modern mm-hmm. Billie Holiday. Um, and I've been I've listened to her work over and over and over, just as much as Joni Mitchell's, and tried to write some some work that mirrors the rhythms that I hear, okay. not just like incorporating the. Um, the uh, words or lyrics. I do that a little bit, but more often what I, that's what I was trying to do with this song also, which is just mirror some of the rhythms. And I wasn't actually too pleased with my reading just now because I usually try, (laughs) I usually try to read it as if I'm here listening to the song because it makes the rhythm go uh, the way I want it to go Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm a free verse writer. So I'm creating my own rhythms in my poems as a free verse writer and I'm borrowing as any, you know, I listen to a lot of jazz, so this is going to happen to me a lot. I borrow from a lot of uh, songs and incorporate those rhythms into my own personal rhythms, you know, that are coming from my essence or body or whatever, wherever personal rhythms come from. And I try to work those in and uh, make it create something beautiful for the reader. But your original question was actually, how do I do this a lot? I'd say yes. And I really love collaborating um, with all kinds of musicians. My husband's a composer, a classical composer and a oud player and, uh, you know, electric guitar, uh, soloist, um, you know, and I, I've collaborated with him when I've read, uh, uh my co-translations from the Arabic, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit today. I've, uh, done, I've read them, um, or performed them alongside his oud playing because that's a, pretty traditional way to do it mm-hmm. in Arab countries. Uh, so yeah. we're just honoring the, the original writer by doing that. I, I love that. I, I love the idea of sort of collaborating with musicians either, you know, in the room or from, you know, three, four decades ago like that. That sounds like a really 
exciting and fun uh, creative process to do. It is. Yeah. And they do feel (laughs) as if they're, you know, Joni's right with me. You know, I do feel like I'm, I'm doing a collaboration in that way. Like I'm in a conversation with them or riffing on their rhythm or something, you know, there's something going on uh, that, and it's exciting because it sparks something that I wouldn't have necessarily come from me if I wasn't playing off of something else. I think that's the same reason why people write ekphrastic poetry, which is a sort of collaboration with an artist, a visual artist. Uh, yeah, I was actually, I was, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was oh, just going to say that, that <laughs> I think we, we might be almost about to say the same thing maybe, <laughs> but you go ahead. You go well, ahead. I was, I was just going to ask you, I am not, I'm not very well versed in poetry, but I love reading poetry. And I was going to ask you if you thought that this counted as ekphrastic poetry or if that strictly has to be visual art. There's no strict definition. I have called these sort of collaborations ekphrastic poetry before, Mm -hmm. but then there, you know, there are different schools of thought on it. So when I've done that publicly in a performance, I sometimes see it raised eyebrows or people come up to me afterwards. No, it's not. But <laughs> I think it's the definition isn't very nailed down. Um, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. You're working off of a work of art of some kind. I think there's just no word for this. So right now, yes, ekphrastic. <laughs> but as far as I know, there's no real word um, that that can be attributed to this kind of play that goes on. Yeah, actually, you know, now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking I have written one very short flash fiction piece that that is sort of in that vein with with the David Bowie song. Um, the, it tells the story of like uh, the song is, is is when the day you find out that there's five years left for Earth and then we're all done. And and I just was so, you know, I listened to the song so many times. I had thought about it too many times, and I just had to you know write something that went along with it. And it was so much fun. It was so different than what I usually do. It was really it was you know I need I need to commune with David Bowie's music. I think in some sort of creative way. <laughs> Oh, yes. That's another great. Uh, I was starting to get into Black Star, um, his last album, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing what could come out of that. Uh, and now you're you're inspiring me to go forward with that that initial thought to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of good stories in there. I mean, he, he's good for stories. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I was just going to ask if 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 you could tell us uh if there's some specific inspiration for this, for the poem, like uh, if, if you wrote it after a certain moment or a certain inspiration, um, or was it just sort of, like you said, just responding to a song and sort of putting it into the context of your life? No, there was a moment um, you'd mentioned in my bio that I had won a residency in Portugal, in Lisbon from Disquiet. And when I was there, I was there for, I think, almost a month. And it was just because of the way the flight went. You know, the program didn't last a month. Right. And I certainly didn't have enough money, by the way, <laughs> to, to stay there a month. I just walked around a lot trying to eat very cheaply for, for quite a bit of that time. But when I was there, it was so odd for me. I mean, I've traveled, but I, I think I've traveled mostly in groups. And that was the difference. And I went there not knowing anybody. And it sounds unusual. I mean, I don't know, maybe other people travel alone, but I don't. And this time I did because it just was the nature of the experience. And I everything was so unfamiliar. And we had to get to where our classroom was from where the uh, we were lodged. And it was a you know 
all these different ways you could go. And I was shown a couple of times. And at some point, I just had to do it myself, of course. Mm -hmm. And they had warned us of pickpockets and all these different things. Mm. And it just, it was so foreign. Like that word foreign was became, became very real for me more than other okay. places. For some reason, Lisbon, I don't know why. But up until, well, up until this one moment, I was walking up these, it's right there in the poem. I was walking up these stairs and then it just hit me. It, this isn't, this isn't other anymore. This isn't foreign. Like I felt at home. I could feel that it was, it was okay. And it wasn't that far into the, into the almost month experience. It was like maybe a week and a half. And then after that, I was fine. And it was just really striking. It was very striking. And then I was reflecting on that. Um, and I told the, one of the other participants that I, I was starting to tell her this story of what had happened to me. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm so over this place, too. And I said, that's not actually what I mean. I don't feel like I'm over this place. <laughs> I feel like I'm at home, actually. I feel I feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Like everything I look around and people are just people now. They're not just they're, they're just not strangers. And then I, when I came home and I was starting to write my eco poem series, I, you know, I was listening to Joni Mitchell and it all just sort of came together, how I could write about this moment. Her song gave me an entryway into writing about this moment because in that song, as you know, she travels, she's talking about traveling and it starts in her song. I think she starts off in France, you know, and then she goes to Greece and she goes to all these different places in her song. And so I just thought I can do that too. That can be a, the structure of her song, not just the rhythms, which I was heavily trying to follow with, I don't know how much success, but definitely the structure of her song mm -hmm. shows up in the poem where I go from place to place. And instead of longing for home, I'm, as I said earlier, I feel at home. And these are the other two traveled places, you know, in, in Dubai is the second place. And then the last one is in Korea. I did have those moments. I remembered, you know, when I was trying to create the poem, <laughs> where else have I felt this? You know, I felt it in these other places. And so I think that's how a lot of people create poems. They're finding a way to talk about something and form helps, but I'm not a formalist. So okay. this is, she offered this sort of form. Joni did. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I also, uh, I had exactly the same experience. I, I went to Lisbon for the Disquiet Conference guess it was in 2019 now. Oh, um, wow. I mean, I was only there for two weeks, but I, I felt the same thing. Like there's that, I mean, it's the best feeling in the world when you're visiting somewhere and suddenly you feel like you've, you've kind of got it. You've got it in hand. You can handle it now. Yeah. That, that's it. Know? That's it. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Maybe someday I'll be able to write about it, but I haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask, uh, you know, the common we're focused on place and and obviously this poem goes, you know, three different places, as you mentioned, and, and is an ode to a fourth. Is that something you do often in terms of like writing about places or is it, does it just sort of depend on, on the poem? It does depend on the poem. And uh, I might even say the poem series, because I tend to write in series. And I mentioned earlier the eco poem series that I'm writing. It's called the Pacific series. And that's just... I wrote that here in Peabody, you know, looking back, I haven't been, I haven't lived in, in that part of California for ooh, 25 years. Oh, wow. I'm revealing my age a little bit here, but in any case, 
it's been a long time. And I was doing this con, I was a, a judge for this uh, wonderful contest called the Bow Seat. Um, ooh, Bow Seat. I don't know what the full name of it is, but it's a it's a contest for high school and middle schoolers who write poetry, fiction, and do visual arts uh, to uh, express their feelings about and to fight, uh, you know, pollution and climate change and things like that. So they're all they're all right in the. And I was doing the, I was doing this I think in around 2016 or something. I was judging this contest, and there's like thousands of entries that you have to go through. So I was reading poem after poem after poem from these kids from around the world writing about the ocean. And it just made me keep thinking about California and where I grew up and going to the beaches. And, mm. and I just, and I'm here in Peabody and it is a nice area here, except there, it's just not the same. It's like in <laughs> no way the same. And just my imagination was ignited by reading these kids poems. And I just was going to that place. And I was thinking about how geography is so embedded in me and how Californian I am like, I don't feel like, uh, like in terms of identity, that's pretty high up on my list is, <laughs> uh, and not even Californian. I was, because I lived in San Francisco for a while. So I would say Southern California is very much there in my, in my DNA. And it was very easy for me to travel there in my memory, in my mind. And I did research, you know, I went online because I didn't remember everything. Right. But I I could tell that because I would ask people that were there, like, can you read this poem? Does, is it my getting this right, this place, right? And they would say yes. So because it's so much in me, doing, you know, incorporating research seemed to work according to these people that I had. I had check out my poem, make sure, you know, my various place poems uh, to make sure that they're correct or authentic or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, now that you mentioned it, like I know that you live in Massachusetts, but when I read the poem, I just assumed that you lived in California. <laughs> you, you convinced me. <laughs> oh, good. That's good to hear. So your new poetry collection, Object Lesson, it just came out at the beginning of this year, and it came out with a companion guide as well. Would you tell us a little bit more about both of those books? Yes. Uh, so Object Lesson is a collection about... I would say not about, it's exploring the issue of human trafficking and more specifically sex trafficking in America. And that collection actually was originally very long. Um, and I started writing it in about 2012 after I heard a sermon uh, from my pastor who had, she had an experience in Las Vegas, an encounter with uh, human trafficking. Uh, again, I should be more specific with sex trafficking. And it just really hit me very, very hard. I just started crying. And it just, and, and the pastor said, you know, I'm a pastor, this you are, you know, this community is my, is my way of helping the world. But if anyone out there wants to address this issue, this is very important, something like that. And I just felt like, well, I'm just a writer, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about that. And I was sort of challenged by my own question. What can I do about this issue? And I thought I can pay attention to it because that's what writers do. That's what artists do. Mm -hmm. We pay attention yeah. and, and I have a choice about what I pay attention to. So I started to do research. I started to volunteer as a poetry teacher at a safe house. I started to volunteer as a blog writer for an organization, uh, a survivor organization, survivor advocate organization. And I also started to realize that I had some, my own life story was a bit 
affected by this issue because the, you know, I started seeing through my research and hearing, going to all these various events and hearing speakers, hearing survivors of sex trafficking talk about where they came from and their history and how they, they, they match this, the typical mm-hmm. trafficked person. And that's it. And their story matched my story up to a point because so many of them were, I'm not going to tell my whole life story, but one thing that's really big is that I was from age seven months to age seven years old was in foster care. Mm-hmm. And that really affected my life quite a bit. And so, and this is a huge statistic, so many people coming out of foster care, uh, but mostly girls, and they are victims of uh, coercion and coerced into the sex trafficking uh, lifestyle. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, and I remember times in my life where that could have happened to me, actually. And I just, I realized my crying was not just, I'm just moved by this, you know, important issue, but that there was something going on, it was sort of like, for my, you know, for what could have happened to me. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. So I explored it through poetry because I'm a, I'm a poet. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm, I wanted to do. And I also wanted to empower the, the people who had actually survived this, this experience because I had not. I mm-hmm. wanted to empower them. So as I said, I, I taught poetry classes to, to just teach, you know, how to tell your own stories in, in these compressed ways in poems. Uh, in in a few places, I did that, and then when I um, when I it came time for me to publish the book, I asked my publisher if I could, um, or actually I think it was a sort of she had the idea as well. I, I realized I asked her, but she was thinking of it anyways. I'm so happy about that. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, if I could publish a guide to writing poetry based on the book, on the my my collection, but more to teach how to write poetry. Uh, specifically geared towards uh, survivors of trauma in general. But my hope is that sex trafficking survivors especially can, uh, the organizations that deal with them can take up the book and, you know, find uh, folks who want to teach uh, their population and and utilize this book. I tried to keep it very simple. It's a super short little book and and I'm very happy about it. Yeah. So that's, that's how that all came about. That's so great. I love, I love the idea of the companion guide. Um, I have in your, I read in your bio that you, you founded free to write, which is poetry workshops for trauma survivors. Could you just tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, I just, I founded that when I started to do the poetry workshops at, at the safe house, the initial safe house I worked at. And I did that to sort of, oh, I don't know. I think I had a kind of a grand vision at first that I would, I would create this, uh, this curriculum, which I ended up doing. I mean, that's what that book is. The, mm-hmm. the guide to writing poetry is, is a sort of curriculum, but also just as a, I don't know what the right word is, a clearinghouse or resource center for uh, folks, teachers of uh, other teachers of trauma survivors, different kinds of traumas, because those it's sort of a community that's out there. And it didn't really take off very much. Um, I'm a mom with, and at the time I had, my kids were young. <laughs> I couldn't devote as much time as I wanted to it. So we, I do have a website that's populated with some things. Um, but my hope was to do a lot more with it right now. It's on hiatus. Mm-hmm. So it's just, my life has taken different turns. My, my kids are now grown because this is, as I said, I began this in 2012. It's quite, quite a time ago. 
so I might get back to it. Or if I found, and this is a good time to say this because this is a public podcast, <laughs> if I were able to partner with someone or find someone who wanted to take up the the cause right. and I could right. bequeath the things that I've learned and uh, maybe the website, um, I'd be happy to do that because uh, it's just, yeah, my life has, has gone in so many directions. And, and I think... Uh, the uh, the wind was taken from my sails to to <laughs> to use an overused phrase <laughs> uh, because the book itself wasn't published right away and I think that kind of got to me I finished mm-hmm. it pretty quickly and I, all the pub- poems sorry all the poems in the book were published actually in the and in the larger manuscript mm-hmm. there were a, I mean that's a ton of poems published yeah. but I could not find a press for it and. I started to wonder if, um, you know, of course you wonder about the quality, you know, so I would just mm-hmm. constantly check over the quality, but then they were getting published. And I did wonder if people were a bit wary of the topic. And I realized that I, I started getting a little bit miffed at that. <laughs> but then I thought, you know what, this is hard. This is hard topic for people to, to think about, to talk about, to confront, um, I started to think about when I would give readings and I would read these poems without like, giving anybody any warning. I was sort of an assault on people. <laughs> assault is kind of strong, but it was like people were really affected and they looked, yeah, just not prepared to be affected. So I decided um, to change how I do readings. And when the book came out, I did this too. I consciously did this where I would thank, I would prepare people for what they were going to hear and thank them for being open-hearted and open and having an open mind and receiving this information. Um, that's, that's difficult. And I wish I would have thought of that earlier when I was trying to send the book out. It took, you know, so many from 2012 to just, as you said, recently to the publication for me to pretty much realize that. And I think it would have been better. I would have had more momentum for this and given, been able to give a lot more back to the cause. If I had, if I had thought about that, taking in into consideration audiences. I don't know how often you've heard people talk about this. I never hear people talk about that. Like, what is the, you know, what can I do for the audience to receive this more easily? Um, So it was a hard knock lesson for me, I think, because I hadn't, it wasn't taught directly to me to think about that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that as writers, we're very often told to be sort of pure and not think about the artists. And there's this big, big energy for never thinking about your reader because it will just, you know, lead you astray or make you too nervous to write or something like that. And I think that you're yeah. right, that there, there is a time and a place in your writing process, probably not the beginning, but maybe at the end to, yes. to, to think about readers and what they might need. And I also, you know, I think you should be forgiving with yourself because I think the idea of, you know, content warnings or trigger warnings or something that we are all familiar with now, but we definitely were not in 2012. You know, I think that that idea of, you know, the emotional cost of, of, of reading and encountering certain kinds of content. You know, we, we weren't really thinking about that very much in 2012. <clears throat> You're right. Yeah, that's true. I, um, I, I just, just want to, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Go I, ahead. I just wanted to say that um, for anyone who's interested in the things you're talking about, the, the free to write workshops or, or the, um, the object lesson companion guide, we can definitely link those from the, from the show notes so people can, can find them online. That's, that's great. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, I I was just going to say that I don't even think of it as a trigger warning like when I say it. Just mm-hmm. just as a slight differentiation, I think of it more as 
just gratitude to people for 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 being present. It just feels a little different, but it does serve as a tra- trigger warning as well <laughs> in case someone just doesn't want to or is it isn't good for them. They know themselves that it, it isn't right for them to hear s- certain things, you know, especially in a public place that they're just sitting there and this information's coming at them. Um, but really, for for most people, most people haven't encountered this. That's mm-hmm. my experience. So for those and those folks would have reactions, too. So for them, it's a yeah, I'm thinking of gratitude and being present and just a preparation and a working a working up to the topic. Right. Yeah, I like that, like a, a gratitude for listening and sort of encountering the material. Mm hmm. So the Common also published some work that you co-translated from Arabic with Amir al-Azraqi um, by two women poets from Iraq. And in the translator's note, you you outline the really fascinating process of translating from a language that, that you don't actually personally speak. And you, you've included some, some comparison lines of sort of straight, what I would call literal translation alongside the final, more poetic lines. Would you talk a little bit more about that process? Yes. Uh, so... Yeah, that's uh, that was such a surprise to me to be suddenly translating. I never saw myself doing that. I've only ever spoken English, and um, when I when I was involved with when I first became involved with the Her Story is Collective in 2017, I believe, I was able. To, I think you mentioned this in the bio. I was able to travel to to Dubai and meet these uh, wonderful women artists from Iraq and get to know them. They were uh, just amazing. And it was after that experience that I just, I felt like, okay, you know what? I, you know, it's, it, it kind of harkens back to this California poem because that experience in Dubai is mentioned in the poem. This an, an experience from Dubai is mentioned in the poem where I meet this one woman, Mary Mosum. We have this connection and that sort of connection with those women, and I've met international people over my whole life, but just that one, the, it was something very special about this Her Story is Collective, something about just women coming together. And we were un, in a neutral space too, not in each other's country. It was an Arab country, but uh, very westernized. And so it just felt neutral and it's just really intriguing. I felt like, okay, there is a way to connect through language to to another culture. I just, I could feel it because we were working through translators the whole time we were there. And so when, and, and Amr, uh, who I co-translated this poem with these poems with, uh, he was there. He was one of our translators in Dubai. Um, I think he was one of two men that were present that everybody else, it was all women otherwise. And when we, when we came back, um, he had already been co-translating with someone. And I just thought, okay, we, I want to do a, her story as initiative that brings Arab women poetry to uh, to Amer- English-speaking audiences, not just American audiences, but English-speaking mm-hmm. audiences. And I just felt like, okay, how can I do this? I I only know English, and Amr had already been doing this process, and he said, okay, yeah, let's try this together. You know, I've done this before, so he had or- he had done this, and we worked out a process that worked for us, which, as you said, is is uh, in that translator's note. Um, and so it was, it's a very scary process, actually. There's a lot of trust that's involved from the poet, you know, first of all, uh, letting their poem, because we work with only living poets. We're not doing, like most translators, working with people who are long passed away. Mm-hmm. We're working with folks that we can actually ask them questions. And so Amar would, he already had a batch of poems from women 
uh, that he'd gotten. He's a playwright and he's well connected throughout uh, the Arab world and, and the arts. So he was able to collect some poems and he would do this raw translation. And uh, I'm trying to say some different things than what I said in that note. But in any case, did the raw translation. And then I would just, I would be confronted with this really awkward thing in English very often. And it just was, sometimes it would really make me scared and just have an emotional reaction of how am I supposed to make this make sense? You know, it challenged my connection to English, actually. Right. And I had to really consider each word. And so I would just write a couple of different versions sometimes, and I would have a ton of questions. And then I would give those to Amr. And then he would, he's a playwright, as I said, not a poet. And he just does, he told me he does not feel confident to translate poetry, which I thought was interesting because he speaks both languages beautifully, <laughs> uh, English and Arabic. You know, by all accounts, I was told about the Arabic, <laughs> that he speaks it beautifully and knows it very well. Uh, and he's from Iraq. That's his native language. But he did not feel confident. He felt like he had to work with an English speaking poet. So he would take those questions and go to the to the poet and ask the questions, or he would try to figure it out as much as he could himself. And we'd go back and forth until something, there would always be this moment, again, to go back to the California poem, sort of this epiphany kind of moment where I would feel at home. <laughs> Actually, it's very similar. Just in the translation, do it in the process, I would feel at home with a phrase. Usually it's phrase by phrase, not always the whole poem at once. That didn't really happen. But as things would go along, I would suddenly start to feel at home with what was being talked about, you know, and, and how the poet was approaching it and any kind of patterns that were emerging that I could try to retain in English. And once that happened, I felt like, okay, I could do this. And I would gain some confidence and we would just have a few more back and forths. And then the poem would, would be finalized eventually. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question quite. Yeah, no, you you absolutely <laughs> did. Um, it, it's it's something that always fascinates me because um, your poem, your translation of that poem is is not the first poem that we've published like that, where sort of a, a translator maybe collaborated with someone who doesn't speak the language or a poet or someone to sort of help with the finessing of the language and sort of finalizing it. And it it, it always intrigues me. And I also think the work that comes out of those collaborations is always really beautiful and. and you know, it's not just about meaning and making sure the meaning comes across, but but getting yes. apart, getting across some of the language and the rhythm and stuff. And I mean, that I I, I find it endlessly fa fascinating that anyone is capable of translating poetry, because it, it always just strikes me as being sort of untranslatable. You know, in terms of rhythm and rhyme and word sound and that kind of thing. Well, it is untranslatable, and I I think because I've only it might be the case because I only know English, although I'm studying Korean, by the way, but because I, I only know English that I feel okay about the fact that things aren't able to be translated because I live in one language. So I know, like, I can't get that thing. I can't get at certain things in right. another language. So, so I can let go of that. I think when people hold on to that too much, it, it can impede the translation process or they don't even want to do it. Because they're, they're just think this is impossible. But I was told something very interesting when I was in Lisbon. We keep returning back to this, to this Lisbon thing. But by a, tra a very young translator, um, uh, what is Bruna? Uh, ooh, I'm forgetting her last name. But anyways, uh, a, a Brazilian translator named Bruna. She said that she she was she had sort of a theory of translation that she had either learned or I don't know if she had come up with it. 
Mm-hmm. But I loved it, which is that, um, and she was a lone translator. She didn't do co-translation. She did both, you know, both sides from the Portuguese to English and back and forth. And she said that a translation is a work of art. It's its own thing, you know, separate from the work of art that was original. And I think that's pretty controversial. When she said it, I was like, really? That mm-hmm. can that can be that's allowed. And she's like, it's, it's just a a way that you could think about this if you want to. And, uh, Oh, Bruna Lobato. I think that's her name. Oh, we published her. Yes, you have. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, She wrote a story for us. Yeah. She's fabulous. She, but when she said that, I thought, okay, I hope I am. I'm not misinterpreting what she said, but that's what I got from what she said is that it's its own work of art. So then hearing that, and I didn't hear that too long before I started translating. I think I heard it in a couple of months before I actually started these, this process. So it was still very fresh for me. And I just thought it's okay as long as someone who has, is a native speaker signing off and, right. and who can communicate, <laughs> you know, and who can communicate with the original author. So there, the author and this, this co-translator signing off on this, this art object that I'm not totally, you know, um, misrepresenting their work because I'm still representing their work, but, but it's, it's severed enough from it that it's its own work of art. I still would never say like, here's my work, you know, and it's, it's that person's work. I wouldn't do that. That's not what I'm saying. I hope no one out there thinks that, but it's more just, yeah, it's just a, uh, it's what, it's sort of a, it's a, it's further along from what I was doing, let's say with Joni Mitchell with the California, like I'm, I'm riffing on the rhythms. I'm doing what I can. I'm responding to certain things. That's, that's one kind of way of translation in a way it's mm-hmm. lighter, but this is, this is more direct because I'm actually using their concepts and the arrangement of their concepts. You know, I'm following that and I'm trying to get as close as I can to every, anything they're trying to say and uh, yeah, and represent it to the to the new audience the english-speaking audience um yeah so that's new great work of art. yeah that does it does sound a little bit like like the riffing on Joni mitchell that you mentioned before and it's an interesting comparison um would you just in case our listeners aren't familiar with with that organization her story is would you just tell us briefly what that organization does yes her story is is it's an initiative by the fort point theater channel which is a uh, collective of playwrights and other kinds of artists. And that group started Her Story Is because I think that uh, it grew out of a collaboration with Four Point Theater and um, uh, the William Joyner Institute originally. They, they had uh, this collaboration between American artists and Iraqi artists to, to sort of restore relationships between the two nations. Uh, this, this happened like, sooner after uh, America was in Iraq in, in a contentious way. So, so that's, that's when that first happened. And then her story is became, you know, the women that were involved with that wanted to just make it develop it further and make it uh, just an all woman's collaborative. And uh, it was begun by Ann Lawyer and uh, another person heavily involved is Amy Merrill and they're primary, primarily playwrights. I think, although I think Ann Lawyer is also a visual artist, but they, they were interested in this sort of restorative relationships, you know, bringing uh, former enemy nation folks together around the art, centered around the arts to collaborate, to understand each other, to heal past wounds, to understand each other. Uh, 
Um, I mean, this is what was done back in the 80s, I believe, with um, between the Soviets and America, right? Mm-hmm. I forget what that was called. There was there's a certain name that I pull myself to remember, but I cannot. But yeah, to bring them together, yeah, yeah, I can't quite remember. But to bring, you know, the, it it can begin with art piece, like real peace and restoration can begin with artists. It's a one way to go, mm-hmm. you know, where you just bring the artists together and they link up and they create relationships and they exchange culture, you know, and they honor each other's culture too, and uh, in that way restore things, restore and norm, not just normalize, but heal and recreate a new. The relationship between the countries so it's not just based on past wars you know right uh so we came together as e- her story is people that are coming together in that group come together as equals so it's not that we are the bad colonialists and <laughs> yeah. they are the sufferers it's not like that because if it, we do it like that then it's that then it's like we're it's still it's a patronizing kind of relationship it's instead these iraqi women are amazing completely educated and and want their their stuff out into the world. Mm-hmm. They want to be translated. They want, you know, uh, us to share their work and to collaborate with them. And they want to share our work with with their countrymen and their country folk. And they they're translating my my poems have been translated into Arabic and shared. Oh, that's um, so cool. So yeah. So and it's going. And right now, her story is has a play that's. Uh, with Iraqi, Tunisian, and American playwrights collaborating together, uh, because uh, in Tunisia they speak Arabic and French, so it's French, Arabic, English. I don't think there's a fourth language, but it's in all those languages, all at the same time. It's pretty amazing what they're doing, and it's all over Zoom. And they had a reading recently, um, and I'm collaborating with this uh, amazing poet, Hana Ahmed. Uh, we're doing poem exchange based on place, actually where we write about a place in our country and then we respond to each other's poem about that place in the best way that we can, like reflecting on whatever the other person said. And yeah. And eventually hopefully that, that poem exchange will turn into something published out into the world. That would be great. Um, But yeah, that's her story is. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's great. I love it. Uh, We'll definitely link that in the, in the show notes as well. So people can find out more about it. Great. Uh, Always my last question is, is what are you working on now? Like, what should we look for next from you? Not like you didn't just put a book out, but like, what's next? (laughs) (laughs) Um, wow. What is next? I think that my hope is to have my manuscript, The Pacific with the eco poems out Mm -hmm. in the world. I've been sending that out. Uh, that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming towards. I'm, you know aiming towards to be out in the world in a more immediate way. I mean, folks could go to my website, jennifergenwriter.weebly.com and I have an events page and I have a ton of events that, that I, um, that I'm doing where I read more poems from object lesson and from the Pacific series, because that's where a lot of my focus is as well. And also I read co-translations in those, in those events. I'm trying to think of anything upcoming I think I have a Hudson Valley Writer Center reading in August, but I probably have other other things sooner. Um, oh, April twenty first, uh, Lily Books, my press for Object Lesson, we're having um, Lily Lily Readers reading, Lily Books reading. I'm, I'm misrepresenting that name, but in any case, that's also on my website. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited about these 
eco poems. I want to get that book out there and continue to promote, as you said, Object Lesson, which just came out. That's great. That sounds great. Yeah, we can definitely link to those. Um, and uh, yeah, I also look forward to seeing the eco poems out in the world. That It just sounds fantastic. Um, and I would love to finish up by having you read one of those co-translated Arabic poems that we talked about earlier. If you could read uh, Definitions by Nadia Al-Khatib. Um, I, I just yes. love that poem. Yes. My heart is a pear your pocket can't contain. My heart is poorly stored. It starts to rot. My story, I'm a girl tempted into a wonderland. The more truth I know here, the less joy I know everywhere. Our meetings are marked by the knife of the past, and my feet can't run in your gorgeous garden, where death overtakes the body of my story. Should I repair your wings for you to fly out of this love story? Thank you so much for <laughs> reading that and for joining us today. Uh, it's been so great to talk with you, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Emily. I've enjoyed it. Listeners, you can read Jennifer's poems and subscribe to the magazine at thecommononline.org.